Our sermon today will be taken from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. This is the word of God. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but on the side of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a royal priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Let us pray one more time for the preaching of God's word. Father, we thank you for your word, that you did not leave us to our own devices, but you've revealed yourself to us through the ages past, and you've recorded that for us through the prophets and apostles of the Old and New Testaments, Father. We thank you as well, Lord God, that you've revealed yourself climactically in Christ Jesus, who's become the cornerstone of the church, and it is on that cornerstone, Father, that we depend upon, it is on that cornerstone that we rest in, and it is in that cornerstone that we point to. So, Father, as we come to this passage, Father, help us now understand this passage. Help us now understand it not only with our heads, but also with our hearts, so that everything that we do, Father, would be in conformity to and point to this cornerstone that you've set up for us as a foundation and pinnacle of our church. Father, help us in all of these ways and help me be clear by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Friends, we're continuing our series in the book of 1 Peter, and right now we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. And as I hope it's been made clear in the last few weeks, that the book of 1 Peter was written to persecuted and suffering Christians. They were uh, first, and secondary Christ, uh, first and second generation Christians who are under the persecution of the emperor Nero, the Roman emperor at the time, and these are Christians who are coming from a lot of different places, from the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. In other words, Christians from a wide region who are being persecuted and suffering under Nero. Their lives are at stake. Their lives are being put under jeopardy. They're being put under social shame under Nero. And so Peter writes this letter to be circulated among these suffering, persecuted Christians so that they could be encouraged, so they could actually endure the suffering, so they keep keep going, and that they could... Endure suffering in such a way where they're not compromising their faith. They continue to cling to Christ Jesus. And then therefore, they could persevere through it faithfully through the suffering. And as we've seen, this first section of the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1 all the way until the end of this first section, which is 2.10, is actually Peter encourages his Christians by reminding them of the foundational truths of the gospel. And it's not only after 2.10 and 2.11 onwards, we're going to see from next week onwards, where Peter actually gets practical, so to speak, where Peter gets, uh, 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 gives them commands, advises, imperatives, exhortations, and, and how to live their lives specifically. 
But here in this first part of the book, 1 Peter 1, all the way to 2.10, where we're ending it today, Peter simply discloses to us the foundational truths of the gospel. So he's actually presupposing that if you simply proclaim and remind yourselves of the fundamental core of the gospel, what happened to you that you became a Christian? What happened in Christ Jesus? What did God do for you in Christ Jesus? You would be able to persevere. So before he gets to the exhortations, before he gets to the practical advice, before he gets to specific um, commands on what to do, in specific kinds of sufferings, he's going to remind us again and again what, what happened to you. And here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, he gets to the climactic part of it. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be in the church. This is what the church is supposed to be like. And here's the center of it all, the cornerstone of the church. 1 Peter 2, 4 to 10 tells us climactically about who we are as a church in Christ Jesus. So there are three things that I want to point out today from this passage. First, what it means to be a Christian. Second, the cornerstone of the church. And third, the task and the message of the church. What it means to be a Christian, the cornerstone of the church, and the task or the message of the church. And again, there's a running thread here that what binds all these three points, the, 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 what it means to be a Christian, the cornerstone of the church, and the task of the church, uh, is being undergirded by, by one a single metaphor by Peter. And that's the single metaphor of the church being a spiritual house, a holy temple filled with priests and kings and prophets. And so what does it mean to be a spiritual house? What does it mean that this house is a cornerstone? We're going to get right into it. First then, what does it mean to be a Christian? Look at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. There's a ton here. There's going to be three subpoints under this first point. What it means to be a Christian means at least these three things according to these two, verse, two verses right here. First, it means that you're coming to Christ and you're being conformed into the image of Christ. Second, it means being plugged into a community. And third, it means at least being indwelled by the Spirit so that you would become a holy priesthood. That's a lot. So let me unpack that. So first, what it means to be a Christian means coming to Christ. Look at what it says again in verse 4. As you come to him, he is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. So being a Christian, first of all, means putting your faith or coming to Christ and coming to rest in him as a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. And notice what happens when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, when you come to him, in other words. Verse 5, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. So this first sub-point of what it means to be Christian is simply that when you're coming to Jesus Christ, your life cannot remain the same. When you're coming to Jesus Christ, his identity, his being, his history, his personality, his biography, what happens to him necessarily will pour into your life. So there's no such thing as coming to Christ and then he's still out there and you're not united to him and you're not impacted by it. But if you're coming to Christ, if he's a living stone, in other words, if he's indwelled by the Spirit, as we're going to see, you're going to be indwelled by the Spirit. And if you're coming to Christ, if he's rejected by men, you would be rejected by men, by all of humanity. But you're, if you're coming to Christ because he was chosen and precious by God, you too would become chosen and precious by God. 
And so Peter is saying here, his first fundamental sub-point about what it means to be a Christian, especially to Christians who are suffering persecution, social alienation, adversity from all over. He's saying here, why are you surprised that you're rejected and suffering? Why are you surprised that adversity comes to you? Is a servant greater than his master? If Christ Jesus suffered all that, if he was rejected by man, why should you expect anything different? If you're following a crucified Savior, in other words, and you're expecting a triumphant, glorious life now in the present age, then you don't have a clue who you're following. Because if he's a living stone and rejected, crucified ultimately by humanity, why should you expect anything different? And this is exactly what was happening in the first and second centuries. Nero was persecuting Christians, and on the basis of their faith was crucifying them, socially alienating them, and he wasn't just crucifying them in the backgrounds, right? Nero made sure that those who he crucified in Christ's name, right, were actually being put outside of the city gates for everybody to see. They were being crucified upside down like Peter was, and when they were crucified, they were lit up on fire, and they made sure that they were lit up on fire in the middle of the night so that when people were passing by, they could see the fire of Christians being burned. Why did Nero do that? Because he was communicating to people, you want to follow this Jesus? This is your destiny. You will suffer this. In other words, he was putting up these suffering Christians as an example to other people who might be tempted to follow Christ. You want to follow Christ Jesus? This is what's going to be waiting for you. And Peter is saying here, why are you surprised, O Christian, that suffering is coming for you? Why are you being surprised that your faith is being tested by fire? Why are you being surprised that when you became a Christian, life didn't become easier for you? Life became much harder for you. People looked at you differently. You're causing all kinds of divisions in your family, and society is looking at you as if you're a stranger, an alien. Remember who you are. You're an elect exile, First Peter is saying. And who was Jesus? He didn't have a place to lay down his head. A prophet didn't have a home to come back to. Jesus was torn apart, beaten, bruised by men, betrayed by his closest friends, and that's the person you're following, Peter is saying. And if he is a living stone chosen and purchased by God but rejected by men, that's what's going to happen to you. And, and that's exactly how you become more and more like Christ. You become more and more like Christ, not by enjoying the comforts of this world, but by being so secure in God that when suffering comes your way, you're being purified. You're learning obedience. You're enduring the suffering in such a way where you could go through it and your character is tested and tried. And so there's something pure that comes out of it. But how? How do we grow into that? How do we endure suffering? How do we become more and more like this living stone? Well, the second sub-point to the first point, what it means to be a Christian, it doesn't just mean to be conformed to Jesus as you come to him. It also means that you have to be plugged into a community. This is a very practical point. But Peter talks about it in clearly theological, heavenly language. Okay, look at this. Verse 5, again. You yourselves like living stones. You're being conformed like Jesus Christ. Christ is a living stone. You're a living stone. You are being built up as a spiritual house. Okay? Now notice the imagery here. Notice the metaphor. Notice the analogy. Peter is saying here, living stones always have a purpose. The imagery here is that every Christian is like a brick or a stone that is meant to be fit into a single superstructure or a single building, a house, right? And every brick, therefore, every stone, isn't meant to be just lying out there with no purpose. 
lying out there without being connected to, cemented by, by, by workers into the Spirit, obviously, be molded by the Spirit to become a living house, a community, so that every Christian here, as a stone, is being put into this building, and there's stones next to it, there's stones above it, there's stones under it. The Christian here, in other words, is supposed to be vitally and organically connected to a community. In other words, there's no such thing as a maverick Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian who's simply living outside of the church, wanting to live his faith out as a single individual. The image here would be like, that's just a brick laying around on the road, right? Which has no purpose to it, and it doesn't exist for anything, and it's not being held by anything, and doesn't contribute to anything. A Christian, in other words, has to play a vital organic role within the superstructure of a building such that other bricks are dependent upon it, other stones are dependent upon it, and other stones are building upon it, and other stones are under it. In other words, every Christian is being mentored by somebody, is being companions with other people, and every Christian is, in a sense, discipling other people because every Christian here, as Peter is saying, is functional like a priest. Right? And this, this is absolutely significant. We like to think that God transforms us more and more into like Christ simply by us being individuals in our private rooms. Like, this is how we think about our discipleship with God, right? We like to think, God, transform me, kill my sins, make me more like Jesus in the privacy of my own room. Like that's just the way we think that we want it to be. We want everything to be personalized, private, on our own terms. But here's what God is saying. Transformation doesn't work that way. Transformation never comes to you from the inside out in the privacy of your own homes. Transformation always comes in community. It always comes through accountability. It always comes through friendship. It always comes through family. It always comes through living closely, vulnerably, visibly with other people. And if you're afraid of that word, accountability, oh man, you know, this is just about us calling each other out and stuff like that. Friends, accountability is not only necessary for you to grow, accountability is also inevitable. Do you realize that if you're not part of the accountability and the community of the local church, you're part of some other accountability system? You're always inevitably a part of some other accountability system out there. The secular world has its own accountability system. James K. Smith argues in one of his books that the secular world, the world around us, every single system of communities has its own liturgy, has its own accountability system. What does he mean by that? Well, simply, every person lives within a community that reinforces for them the habits and patterns of their lives, right? Think about if you were a secular, typical millennial living in the middle of Jakarta here, okay? You have a liturgy. On Monday to Friday, you work, and every Friday night, people will pressure you to go somewhere. And you have liturgical elements that you partake together. It may not be bread and wine, but it might be vodka and something else. And then every Sunday, you go have brunch. And then you come back to Monday, and every time you're sad, there's accountability there too. People are communicating to you, hey, what you need is not this or that. What you need is just another relationship, another career advancement, more money, then that's just going to be, that's going to make you happier. You have secular accountability in the sense where you have friends that you go to that you're going to go for for counseling. They're mentoring you and discipling you. Here's what I did to advance my life. Here's what I did to get more and more, accrue more wealth for myself. Here's what I did to get more and more relationships. In other words, a, a liturgy, accountability, doesn't just happen in the church. It happens everywhere else. 
And if you're not within the accountability of the local church, the community of the local church, you're going to be part of the accountability somewhere else. Everybody has a liturgical movement in their lives, and everybody has a community around them. It's not whether or not you have accountability. It's which accountability do you want. And so if you didn't mess up your own lives by yourself, you didn't just form your own life, you were never just a self-made person. You were the product of your family, the communities you were in, the schools you went to, the colleges you went to, the work that you're in now. And that's what made you the person that you are before you're a Christian. Why should you expect that God would work through anything else except for the community of the church, right? And that's what it says here about the church being a spiritual house. In other words, the Holy Spirit works through the community of the church in a way that it doesn't elsewhere, right? The the Spirit of the church works in the house and not outside of the house. There's a sense in which the Spirit moves the church and the Spirit works in, in the individual living stones indwelled by the Spirit through the work of the church. And that's how God transforms you. God doesn't just transform you when you're listening to YouTube sermons on the way home. It's not enough. God transforms you by you being vulnerable in a community. People do seeing all of your sins, challenging you day in and day out, and keeping you accountable. And friends, that's not just how transformation works. It's also how enduring suffering works. Whether we like it or not, you can't endure suffering on your own. You can't live life as a Christian on your own. And this is not just about temptations that come your way that cause you or entice you to leave your faith, but it's also simply about persevering well. To persevere well, in other words, doesn't mean you become more and more independent of the church. It means you're more and more inclined to rest on the other living stones of this church. This is how you grow. You're reconciling with one another. You're encouraging one another. You're supporting one another. Okay? So most Christians, I think, when they, when they become a Christian, throughout their Christian lives, they experience, I think, two existential uh, uh, angsts or two existential crises, okay? When they first come into the church and they first come into this community, they're in a honeymoon phase. They're like, everything is great here. People are not gossiping to one another. I feel embraced. I'm listening to the gospel. Christ loves me through this church. He died for me, and everybody here recognizes that. That's fantastic. That's great. But then there's an existential crisis here because you're realizing, well, what about my secular friends, my natural family? They don't see this the way I do. And so you're angsty. You're like, why aren't they coming with me to church? Why are they not seeing what I'm seeing? How do I relate to my normal friends outside of church when I see this beauty of God through this church? And so you feel this crisis. You're mourning. And some of you feel guilty. I feel like I'm leaving away my friends. But really, You're just coming to a different set of foundations, a different worldview from your natural friends. That's, I think, what normally happens to newer Christians. But later on, after you've been in the church for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, you're going to come to a second existential crisis, and you need to go through this crisis normally, normally, if you need to grow. You're going to come and see this church, and 20 years later, you're going to find out that this church is oftentimes more messy than you could ever think. People are more sinful than you ever thought. And, and even though you're a member of this local church and you're realizing everybody's sins and everybody's going through something and everybody's suffering, you're realizing now, wow, okay, I never knew this about the church. I thought the church was supposed to be healthy, clean people depending upon Jesus. But now, no, no, no. Some of the sins that are remaining in the world are just as present in the church. 
And now what do you do? What do you do? What do you do when there are real people in your church, not only who are experiencing and struggling with sin, but suffering deeply? Do you reach in and help? Do you see that and say, this is my family now. This is my obligation now. And you're going to come in and reach in? Or do you simply say to yourself, ah, no, this isn't for me? Because, friends, we're, we're scared of that, right? We're scared of the weight that is upon us if we're actually coming into a community. I heard once in a community group, you know, he said, he, this, this one person actually said, I'm really scared when I ask people how are they in church because if they said, I'm really struggling, oh, my goodness, i got to, you know, devote my whole day to this person. And we're, we're naturally scared of that. But you realize that if you're within this local church and you're a stone living in this temple, this house together, right, you have an obligation. You have to reach in. You have to be connected. So the church isn't a social club. The church has become a family, and that's how you grow. And it's difficult to live with a family. And you know that just from living your natural families. A church, in other words, is not a social club. A church is not just a group of people gathering around with some shared activity, shared hobby. Lots of you are going to go watch Avengers Endgame this week, right? But none of you are going to come away after watching that movie and say, we cry together, we have to bond together, we're family now. At least I don't think so, right? But, but, but the church isn't like watching a movie together and then going out, and then you all have your own little separate spiritual lives. No, the church is coming together and saying, no matter where we come from, our backgrounds, we're one family. Okay. Now, there's, there's a third point under subpoint. Let me just go through this really quickly. But notice here what it says. You're a pure, I'm sorry, you're a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. As you're living so and building up in the spiritual house, notice here, it means that you're being indwelled by the Spirit. And the house of God, this church, is being indwelled by the Spirit so that you might become a holy priesthood. And this is deep, deep Old Testament theology here. Let me just try to make this short, okay. In the Old Testament, the presence of God is a motif throughout. And because of the fall and because of sin, the presence of God cannot dwell with his people, right? When Adam and Eve fell and God came near, they hid. People have a natural instinct to run away from God because God's presence is terrifying to sinful people. Right? And so all the way throughout the Old Testament, the presence of God is this running thread of how will a holy God become present and dwell his holy people? Well, in the Old Testament, God made a way for that through what? The temple. People had to go to the temple and they, had depended, they were dependent upon a holy priesthood, upon sacrifices, so that they might have some access to God in some way. In other words, in the Old Testament religion, people were coming to God by going through an, an alien elite spiritual mediators, namely the priesthood, the sacrifices, and the temple. But here's what God is saying. Because of what Jesus Christ had done, right? Notice at the end of verse 5, through Christ Jesus, God has broken down any distance between you and him so that you might become pure enough and holy enough and acceptable enough so that you can come to God and God will become present with you unmediated by a spiritual elite, so that you cannot go to Christ and you cannot go to God anymore and say, well, that's just not for me. I'm going to depend upon my priests and my pastors to do that. I'm going to just depend upon the work of the church, pay money, tithe, and just go away. No, this passage is saying here, you are just as close to God as if you were in the Holy of Holies and as if you were a priest in the Old Testament. 
God is indwelling you just as much as anybody else. So you have no more need, O oh Christian, to bear and depend upon spiritual elites. You are the holy priesthood. You are a saint. There's no more gradation in religiosity. It's not as if some people are up there, they're elite saints, and some people are here, we're just peons and pawns. No, every single person, if you've been acceptable through Christ, have become equal in God. You're a saint. And so there's no more excuse for you to just be passive and depend on the priest. There's no more excuse for you to just be a stone outside of the house. You are being built up together in the Spirit of God. It's working within you so that you can become one superstructure dependent upon the Spirit. Come to God, therefore, in boldness. So if that's what it means to be a Christian, right? You're a living stone. You're, you're becoming a spiritual house. You're dependent upon the Holy Spirit to become this acceptable sacrifice to your holy priesthood. Well, what about the cornerstone of this church? What about the cornerstone of the community? What is it that causes the community to come together? Well, verse 5 ends with through Jesus Christ. Verse 6 and 7 talks about this Jesus, who is a living stone like everybody else, but he's not like everybody else. For it stands in Scripture, in verse 6 it says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you to believe. Second point then, the cornerstone of the church. Who is Jesus? He is the cornerstone of this building that the church is being built unto. What is a cornerstone? A cornerstone is the stone in the middle of an arch, right? Think about an arced uh, building. I'm not an architect, so I have no idea how to describe this. But think about an arc, a building arc, and there's a, there's a stone right in the middle that holds the arc together, such that if you took out the stone, everything just falls apart. And in common buildings, I suppose, in this arc, this cornerstone has to be one, perfect, it has to be completely proportionate. All of its angles are completely right so that every stone can hang upon the stone and it has to be strong that it could hold and withstand the weight of every other pillar and structure around this building. So that's what Christ is according to this passage. He's the cornerstone. He's that on which everything rests and he's that on which everything depends upon and he's that on which everything points to, right? And notice here the passage that he's citing from Isaiah 26 and also later on, uh, um, Psalm 118 that we read and are called worship, God is saying here, the way God is present with his people, Zion, Zion is the dwelling place of God. The way he's present with his people is through putting onto this people a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Christ, in other words, is the cornerstone, the pillar, the foundation, everything that the, the, the Christian and all the churches have to point to, he is the one. But how do you know that Christ really is your foundation? How do you know that Christ really is your cornerstone? Well, it says it right here. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame so that the honor is for you who believe. How do you know if Christ really is functioning as the cornerstone in your life? Let's talk about this briefly on the level of the individual and level of the church, okay? In the level of the individual, how do you know Christ is the cornerstone of your life? Well, as this text says, do you find Christ to be the source and foundation of your deepest honors? Do you find Christ to be the source and foundation of your deepest worth? Do you find Christ that, that, that you say to yourself that if I had Jesus Christ, everything else I could count as lost? 
Here's what it's saying here. If I have Jesus and the whole world puts me to shame, I have my honor. I have him. Right? Um, Mike Bird, who's a New Testament theologian in, in Australia, he actually assigns a particular biography to all of his PhD students. And in this particular biography about a man named George Eldon Ladd, who was a professor at Fuller Seminary back in the 60s to 80s, George Eldon Ladd had made it his life's goal to be acceptable and to get the honor and reputation from non-Christian academia. So he said to himself, I'm a Christian academic. I'm going to go into the secular publishing world and secular academia, and I need to make God look good there in, in terms of my scholarship. So he made his life's goal to publish in non-Christian publishers, to present in non-Christian conferences, to make sure that he's the Christian representative who has a place at the table. And that's the name of the biography, a place at the table. A place at the table in terms of non, the non-Christian world. And he made that his whole life's goal. And what happened was when he published his first big book, the very first review of that book was a negative review from a non-Christian who basically called him out and said, this is just a Christian guy masquerading as a scholar. This is nothing that we can take seriously and so forth. And his whole life was building onto the moment. And when that review hit, he could never recover from it. He had a mental breakdown. He just Torn, he was torn apart. He was, his whole life was shattered. He couldn't eat. He couldn't sleep. He couldn't drink. He couldn't get up and he couldn't get back to work. And his whole life after that, he couldn't bring himself up. And that moment defined his life. Now, what is that story demonstrating for us? It demonstrated that whatever it is that's taken away from you, that when, when it's taken away from you, you feel your whole life is shattered. You feel your whole life doesn't have honor anymore. That's your cornerstone. You see, that's your cornerstone. And and that's why Christ is saying, know whether or not you're building your whole life on my word, which is solid rock and not on sinking sand. How do you know that? When you're suffering. You know what your cornerstone is when you're suffering. Because when an earthquake hits, you know the foundations of a building are strong if the building stays erect. Right? When you're suffering, you don't know what your cornerstone is until you're suffering. And when you're suffering, especially in the context of the first and second century, what's at stake is not simply your academic reputation. What's at stake was your whole life, your social reputation. Families were telling Christians, think about your faith. If you become burned on a cross, our whole family is put to shame. Think about your marriages. Think about your children. Think about your whole work. Think about your whole career. Do do you want to withstand the persecution from Nero just for the sake of Jesus? And the Christian looks at that and says, yeah, Jesus is enough. Take away everything. Take away my life. Tear me from limb to limb. Throw me to the lions. Put me in front of all the people in the Colosseum. Put me to death. Put me as an example through the whole world. Light me up on fire. And the Christian is able to say, Jesus is my cornerstone. Jesus is enough. He is my honor. Let the whole world put me to shame and I have everything I've ever needed because Jesus is my cornerstone and he is my foundation. What are you scared of today? Academic reputation? Your life? Being put to fire? Probably not. But maybe some of you are facing serious questions from your families right now, asking you, 
not to go to church because there are more important events on Sunday that you could attend to with your family. Maybe some of you are in relationships today and your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your partner is telling you, you know, don't talk about that Jesus stuff too much. That's kind of annoying. Let's just tone it down a little bit. You don't have to go to church every Sunday. Community group, no. Let's just spend it, uh, let's just spend it somewhere, somewhere else. Maybe some of you today are rethinking this whole Christian thing because you've been coming to church and you're thinking to yourself, you know, life hasn't gotten better for me. I haven't gotten that new career or that new relationship. You're thinking to yourself, is this whole church thing even worth it? Then maybe you, got, you ought to reconsider what's been your true foundation, what's been your true cornerstone. Is it your boyfriend, girlfriend? Your family or Christ or your work? Because here's how the text continues after that. Verse 7 and 8. Look at what it says here. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of some stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. What is this patch of saying? This cornerstone isn't just the foundation of the church. And this cornerstone isn't just the thing that holds the church together and, 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 and points, and it's everything that the church points to, right? The stone that is erected for everybody to see, everybody to behold, is the point of no return. It's, it's, it's where you look upon and you say to yourself, I have to make a decision about this. This is not something I could be neutral about. There is no neutral ground with respect to Jesus Christ. Some of you might be here today and you're thinking to yourself, I'm on the fence about this Jesus thing and I'm just trying to check it out. You can't be on the fence. It's saying here, with respect to this cornerstone, you are either going to be honored by God and rejected by men or you're going to stumble over this. And you're going to be rejected by God. This is, in other words, the message of Jesus Christ is a naturally, necessarily offensive message. Such that if the church is really pointing to Christ as the cornerstone and foundation of everything else, the church will look utterly alien to the world and offensive to non-believers. Let me get this straight. The church isn't here to entertain non-Christians. The church is here to, to, to give us a message and a verdict upon our lives and to take a look upon ourselves and say to ourselves, we were not good and we needed Jesus. And if the church isn't preaching that message, the church isn't the church. That's what it means to have the cornerstone of the church being Christ, right? C.S. Lewis says in one place, a good education without Jesus simply makes smarter devils. A good education without Jesus simply makes smarter devils. Of course, you can apply that to schools, but you can also apply that to the church, right? A church that preaches good motivational speeches, practical tips on how to fix your marriage, practical tools on how to become better at your business, practical, practical lives on how to improve your mental health just for mental health's sake. You can create a church that is filled with practical, relevant, wise people but it's simply making more practical devils, more relevant devils. What we need is not better advice. What we need is to root our lives in this word, this cornerstone. And if we're not rooting ourselves in it, we're stumbling as we're destined to do. Verse 8, friends, there's no getting around it. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. 
God is not surprised by the rejection against Christ. God is not surprised by the rejection against the gospel. It's all within his sovereign plan. So, oh, Christians, stand by it. And that might sound utterly alien and offensive to you, and it should. But how, then, do Christians continue in this trajectory, continue proclaiming this cornerstone, pointing their whole lives to this Jesus, and not sound simply like jerks, not sound simply like hypocritical, prideful people? Well, we got to remind ourselves that the task of the mission or the message of the church, our third point, task of the church, this cornerstone that's been built And through this cornerstone, we can continue and become the church. Well, what is the mission of the church? What is the message of the church? It's to proclaim Jesus. And what is Jesus' message? Well, look at verse 9. But you, namely the church, talking to you now, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's just pause there for a minute, okay? Two things that this passage is telling us about the mission or the message of the church. This is your identity and this is your proclamation, okay? Identity. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Notice a singular, uh, 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 right? A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And that is remarkable to think about because look at verse 1 again of 1 Peter. It says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, That's a huge and wide-ranging region filled with many nations, with many peoples. And look at what Peter is saying here. You, who are coming from different families, backgrounds, ethnicities, you're a single people now. This is who you are, rooted together. Not only are you single people, you're, you're, you're a united people filled with diverse backgrounds, but you're also a royal priesthood. In other words, you are with God, you have... God's presence with you, mediating God's presence everywhere else, and you have the authority of the word of God because you're a royal king, and you're a holy nation together, rooted as citizens in the kingdom of heaven, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim. There's a prophetic ministry here today. In other words, the whole church from all diverse, diverse backgrounds is all together, collectively, prophets, priests, and kings. All of the functions of Israel that was rooted and and just based upon the spiritual elites in the Old Testament have now been given over to the church. Such that every single member here of a church is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, prophets, priests, and kings to proclaim, that's your identity, to proclaim a single message. The excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Here, oh friends, is how you can continue to proclaim that identity and message. No matter what background you came from, what conversion story you had, whether it is that you couldn't remember a single day where you didn't believe that Jesus was your Savior, or whether you had a complete 180-degree conversion experience that was completely radical and tragic and amazing, all of you, Christian, have the same testimony. You were in the dark, and you were called into His marvelous light. You did not become partakers of this cornerstone out of your own will because you were blindly groping in the dark and you had no way out unless God had plucked you out himself. So that now, verse 10, coming on to this message, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And how are you God's people? Once you had not received mercy, 
but now you have received mercy. How can Christians stay humble, but at the same time confident as we proclaim an inherently stumbling message into the world? Well, remember who you were. You were not good enough yourself. You were not a choice people. You were a chosen people. And you received mercy. In other words, what you had deserved in and of yourself is justice, and that is the wrath of God, but you instead received mercy. And this passage, friends, verse 10, is an allusion. It's an allusion to the book of Hosea, chapter 1 and 2. What happened in the book of Hosea? God had called Hosea the prophet. God had called Hosea, and he says to Hosea, this is how I love my people. This is how I will choose my people. This is how I will be, be, be a husband to my people. Hosea, go take a prostitute. Take a prostitute out of a brothel, marry her. Take this prostitute, be faithful to her as a husband, to her as a bride. And Hosea, be a father to her children. And in the book of Hosea chapter 1, she had many kids. And every kid was named by God, name this person mercy. For I will have mercy. And, and, and in that first chapter, friends, it doesn't mention that these kids were born by Hosea. It doesn't mention that he was the father. She simply had children, and we don't know where these children came from. And God says, love her, be a father to her children. Love her, be a father to her children. And then, two chapters later, in chapter 3, this wife went back to where she came from and became a prostitute again. And God says to Hosea, what are you going to do now, Hosea? This is how I love my people. Buy her back. Buy her with 15 shekels of silver. Make her your wife again. Pursue her again. Don't divorce her. And you know what Peter is saying here? Friends, how are you, people of God? And he alludes to Hosea. You are a people of God in the sense that God pursued you out of the dark, the dungeons of the brothel, the filthiness of your own flesh, the passions of your own lusts. And he is saying here to you now, God has pursued you again and again and again, though you have prostituted yourself to other idols. Read the book of Hosea, he's saying. How are you going to be a humble priesthood proclaiming prophetically the message of this world as a sinner to other sinners? That's how you do it. And once you see that this cornerstone has died the death for you, and he didn't just buy you back with 15 shekels of silver, with his own life and blood, you can look upon him and say, this is my cornerstone, my savior. I will not depend on anything else for everything else. It's like sinking sand. I can now persevere with God as my husband. Let us pray. Father, it is a sobering reality that us Christians we're simply proclaiming the same gospel from one sinner to another, and yet this cornerstone is what upholds us and is a stumbling block to others. We pray, Father, that you would encourage us to continue in humble obedience as we suffer persecution from others, as we suffer the temptations of our own lusts, as we suffer simply the, the, the sufferings of this world in general because of this fallen world, Father, help us now rest and point to cornerstone, Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' precious name.
Amen.